Well, we're spending this month and next looking at Isaiah. And this context of Isaiah 29, the, the whole chapter, if we took time to read it, you'd see that it's a sermon of Isaiah's. I mentioned to you last week that Isaiah was primarily a preacher, preached for 40 years, and preached uh, eloquent and moving messages, but uh, a lot of the people never listened. They didn't, they didn't really dial into what he was saying. And, and in this particular sermon in Isaiah 29, the theme of Isaiah is judgment uh, followed by hope. Since your Bible's open Isaiah 29, just look back at a moment. We're going to look at verses 13 and 14 that Shannon read, but look back at verse 3 to see this, the judgment. I will encamp against you all around. He's speaking to his own covenant people in, in Judea. I will encamp around you. I will besiege you with towers. I will raise siege works against you. Verse 4, and you will be brought low from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. That's judgment language. Why? Why judgment? Well, verse 13, our text, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and their, and their teaching is just the commandments of men dressed up to be a little more important than it actually is. And again, as I mentioned, these were people under covenant. And prophets, who prophets were, well, they were covenant enforcers. They didn't just look at the future. In fact, less of their time and less of their words are about the future, what is to come, although among them Isaiah gets more glimpses of the future than the others. But a lot of what they spoke to was about the present moment that the people were in and calling them back to what God had revealed to them through patriarchs and, uh, and prophets before them. And so these being a covenant people and Isaiah being a, a covenant enforcer, if you will, Isaiah confronts the, the unbelief in his Judean culture with the promise of judgment. Judgment is going to follow for people not listening merely showing up and going through the motions, but not really listening and doing the Word of God as it came to them through their prophets. But it's not just judgment. Judgment doesn't get the last word in Scripture. The last word is hope. And that's what you see through the prophets as well. Ultimately, the hope of God incarnated in Jesus, if you're in Isaiah's time looking forward. Where's the hope? Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. Now, wonder in a prophetic context, has a double meaning. It looks out ultimately to uh, what we'll get into uh, next week in chapter 42, the servant of the Lord who was to come, who would, who would do wonders. But wonder, when you look back at, uh, for instance, uh, the context in Exodus, I will show Pharaoh my wonders. Well, they were impressive things, but they were also judgment things. And so uh, judgment is coming. We've talked about this. But as verse 14 goes on, the wisdom of the wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. How do you know that you're under judgment? This is how you know, among other reasons why. And really, verse 14 is looking out to those who thought they were wise, those who thought they were discerning, judgment would expose them for the phonies that they were because genuine wisdom that centers on Jesus, it doesn't perish, but faux wisdom in keeping power and, and, and control, it does. Isaiah preached to believing unbelief. 
I'm not trying to create a brain twister putting it this way, but looking at what we have before us in this text, Isaiah was preaching to token allegiance. This is now our third Sunday in Isaiah, and we've, we've, we've established that in chapter 6. I'm going to send you out to people who don't listen. Chapter 11, even though the nation is uh, clear-cut, as it were, by uh, Assyria, there's, a, there's these stumps. Out of the stumps going to come a shoot. That's Jesus. And now in chapter 29, you've got this uh, emphasis here on the context Isaiah is preaching into and the context Jesus himself is going to come into is believing unbelief, I'm calling it. People who look committed to God but weren't. They went through the motions. They were religious but not repentant. Now, we think of unbelief and we think of unbelieving, of course. Those two go together. But there is also believing unbelief. Isaiah confronted it here. Jesus did too. In fact, let me read you a place in the gospel. There's at least a couple of these places in the gospels where Jesus quoted these very verses from Isaiah. These two verses that we're looking at here, verses 13 and 14 in Isaiah 29, there's a couple places in the gospel, Matthew 15 and also Mark 7, where Jesus quotes, listen to the context in which Jesus put Isaiah's preaching into his own. Just listen. I'll read you from Matthew 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem in Judea and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And then he gives them the commandment they're breaking. He says, The command says, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained for me is given to God. In other words, I, I would have supported you in your old age, mom or dad, but I, I gave all the money to God because uh, that's how pious I am. Jesus says, no, you're not honoring your father. For the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. And then he says to them, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now what's unsettling about that is he said that to the home team. He said that to the team captains of the home team. I'm reading Mike Leach's book right now, Swing Your Sword. If you're a football fan, college football fan, you know who Mike Leach is, one of the most interesting characters in all of sports. Uh, Mike Leach's book, Swing Your Sword, is my phone book. In other words, it's the book I keep on my phone. And when I'm in those little in-between times in the day, I can uh, read little snatches here and there. Our, our resident Washington State University grad, Ken Erickson, gifted it to me. Leach is the head football coach out there. And in one place in his book, I've always loved uh, coaches because there's a sense in which the pastoral vocation and the coaching vocation, uh, there's a lot, they have a lot in common. And in one place in the book, Leach is thinking back to his early career when he was out in an obscure little program in the Midwest with Hal Mummy. Some of you remember Hal Mummy. And Hal Mummy and, and Mike Leach uh, got together and and Leach was his assistant, and, and Leach says that they were changing the geometry of the game. That's how he puts it, his words, in that particular place. They were running a spread offense before everybody started doing it, and they were meeting some resistance. 
And they were meeting resistance in that very school, on that very team. And of coaching that team, Leach wrote this, it's difficult to be successful as a team if you go out on the field with a third of the squad non-believers. So you've got to either convert them or get rid of them. Now that's kind of what we have here in Isaiah. God told Isaiah back in chapter 6, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, I'm sending you to a people who need to be converted, but they will resist that. I'm sending you to them with my words, the best thing for them, and they won't see it because they don't want to see it. They'll look like they're listening to you. They'll look like they're listening to me, the Lord says, but they're not, so I'm going to get rid of them. Remember the stump imagery, chapter 6, chapter 11. We don't have it in chapter 29. But it's in the background. Assyria is coming. They're going to clear-cut Judah. But the roots would live on. And out of those roots, out of that stump, a, a, a sprig, a, a shoot, it's called in, in Isaiah 11. And we know this picture is the Lord Jesus, who would enter the same place 800 years after Isaiah with all the descendants of the people Isaiah preached to, Jesus would come into the same place, preach the very same thing Isaiah preached, even quoting the prophet Isaiah, would also find resistance. Why? He was preaching to those who were religious, but they were not repentant. He was preaching to believing unbelievers, and we here in the Bible Belt South are their distant cousins. In these two verses, Isaiah 29, verses 13 and 14, Isaiah zeroes in and summarizes the essential problem with something called nominalism. A nominal faith is a token faith. It's faith really in name only. It lacks the substance. It has the sheen. It has the outward expression. It can look the part. It can talk the talk. But that's what nominalism is. It's believing unbelief. A nominal faith puts all of its weight on, well, I had a transaction with God. I, I prayed a prayer. I, I walked an aisle at a point in time. But there's little to no fruit from that. Little to no transformation of the motivational structures of the heart over time. The nominal Christian might even be over-churched. But he or she is underreached with the gospel. They're familiar with the Christian religion, but they're unpracticed in Christian repentance. And either because they don't really know what repentance is. Oftentimes in nominal Christianity, you'll, you'll get this idea of penance, where I have to do certain things now to show God that, that, that I'm sorry for my sin. I have to sort of cover my sin myself. That's penance. It's not repentance. Or uh, repentance is just not done because we love our sin and, and we don't want to give it up. We're, we're comfortable with contradiction or we're too morally lax to put real energy and integrity into making our sin patterns as we, we know ourselves in sin. We, we know our ways and, and means, and, and we don't put real energy or integrity into making those patterns harder to default to. The Lord said, these people honor me with their lips. They draw near with their mouth. Their hearts are far from me. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. He's repeating what he said to Isaiah back in chapter 6 when he said to him, 
Keep on, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. He's speaking into this kind of context. God doesn't want a hat tip to him. He's never wanted that. Our God is not about appeasement. You look at the uh, ancient religions on up until modern times. Some of those ancient religions are still around, but it's all about appeasing the gods. What does the God want? And then I will bring that to the God so that the God will not be mad at me, so that the God will not do bad things to me. And that's, that's not the, the, the God of Scripture revealed uh, in, in Jesus Christ. Uh, he doesn't want hat tips. He wants affectionate allegiance. He doesn't want appeasement. And he's patient with us in cultivating our affectionate allegiance. He works in us and with us to this end by gospel means. But what we've got here in Isaiah 29, just looking at these two verses, what we've got here is the, is the essence of a problem that we swim in all the time, given our cultural location. And I want to take this from two angles, as we often do briefly. I want to think about with you two dominant expressions believing unbelief takes in our particular location, which is the Bible Belt South. How believing unbelief takes, one expression is being spiritual but not religious. And the other expression is being religious but not repentant. Spiritual but not religious Religious but not repentant. Both are expressions of believing unbelief. First, spiritual but not religious. You ever had anybody tell you this? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm just not religious. I'm not into that. And by that, the one telling you that usually means they realize they need a meaning for life. They realize they need something bigger than themselves. Yet the spiritual but not religious person must be in charge of deciding for themselves what is going to be bigger than themselves and meaningful to themselves. It's very self-regarding. A lot of times, people who consider themselves spiritual but not religious, this, this uh, way, this, uh, the, the particular look uh, that we get, the, these two looks we're taking on, on what believing and belief looks like all around us, a lot of times people who consider themselves spiritual but not religious, they want to feel a connection to God. They're not atheists. And their conception of God is typically informed a lot by Christianity. And oftentimes, uh, in some ways, Christianity they grew up with. And they want that connection with God. They want to do good things in the world, be a good person. And should they encounter a Christian in discipleship, apprenticeship, following Jesus who tells them, you know, uh, I appreciate that you want to be your best self, but really the, the way to be your best self is to be consecrated to a holy God through the grace of that God, through Jesus, under the authority of his word, conforming to his way and will. The, the spiritual but not religious person, they, they hear that, but have come to feel there's just so much religious baggage weighing that down that they say, no, nah, I'm going to stay over here. And in fact, in that sentence right there, I buried a little, a little pun that I want to point out to you because I thought it was really cute. <laughs> Namaste, you know, a lot of the spiritual but not religious, they love the Eastern stuff. And so I said in my sentence, Namaste over here. Just thought I would let that stay with you. It's picnic day. I'm sorry I'm not wearing a tie. 
So uh, just, you know, enjoy that. Spiritual but not religious people often replace what they consider to be religious baggage from Christianity with the baggage of self-help stuff, endless self-help stuff. The baggage of Eastern religions, they want to sort of pick and choose and take the things they think are, 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 are good in that and leave the rest. But according to the spiritual but not religious narrative, where you have so much Christian baggage, then you've got hypocrisy. And they're trying to avoid that. I mean, they're, they're hypocrisy avoiders in a, a lot of ways, and there's a lot in that that's admirable. Yet they end up avoiding the doctrine of sin. And when you avoid the doctrine of sin, you miss that the Savior you need is not inside yourself. The Savior you need is outside yourself. In opting for spiritual but not religious, you're, you're trying to get the kingdom without the king. You want the kingdom of God and expression, but you don't want to be submitted to the king of that kingdom. But now there's a second kind of believing and belief, and this one is much more in-house and probably more familiar to us than the other. And this is being religious but not repentant. Being religious but not repentant. This is unbelief that goes to church. There's a pastor down in Tallahassee named Dean and Sarah. He just wrote a book entitled The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. And there from his Tallahassee location, uh, he says, um, the people to whom Jesus quoted Isaiah are our distant cousins. He says uh, Jesus preached to the distant cousins of the overchurched and underreached, those who were religious but not repentant. Here's a flavor from his book. He quotes Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. After quoting that, Dean and Sarah writes, Jesus wasn't speaking about atheists, agnostics, pluralists, or secular humanists. He was describing moral people doing good religious acts in the name of God. Religion was deeply embedded in their routines, which gave them full confidence that their acts of righteousness set them up for a big payoff in heaven. Consider the petitions Jesus gave as an example in our modern context, I believe his examples would translate to our era like this. Lord, didn't we say grace before dinner? Didn't we vote our values? Didn't we believe prayer should be allowed in school? Didn't we go to church? Didn't we believe in God? Didn't we get misty eyes when we heard God bless America at a baseball game? Didn't we give money to the church? Didn't we own Bibles? Didn't we want America to return to its Christian roots? Didn't we stay married and faithful? Well, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Sure we did. And wasn't it good that we did that? Yes, it was. Until doing that caused us to believe in our own self-righteousness. That's where it goes off the rails. Until we began to believe that our moralism and our Pharisaism and our churchianity in churches like First of Anne that rightly strive for orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right belief and right practice, 
And we begin to believe that all of that is what makes us acceptable to God instead of Jesus' excellencies alone. That's where we go off the rails. It's not that the good things we do and the good people we try to be is mistaken on its face. It's that it's so easy for that in our cultural location to morph into self-righteousness. It's the weight that we end up putting on our own goodness around here because we're content with the face. It's all about presenting the right face, looking the part, when God wants the heart behind the face. Repentance is where we give him our hearts again and again and again, not to be resaved over and over and over and over again. Repentance is not just turning from sin, marshaling our energies to keep from a kind of sin that is common to us, but turning to Jesus from sin and seeking his power over that sin. To seek and to find in our Savior what we go looking for in our sin. That's what repentance is for. I'm reading another writer now who's uh, asking some great primer repentance questions like, what if the vast majority of our conversations about Christianity are really not about our faith at all? What if we are so accustomed to thinking about our beliefs in terms of personal preferences like sport teams or our favorite brands that when we try to share the gospel with someone, neither of us are actually thinking about the existence and lordship of a loving God who died on the cross for our sins. Good questions. They get it why repentance is essential. It's not just the spiritual but not religious people who avoid the doctrine of sin and thereby miss that the Savior they need and they're searching for is outside themselves. The religious but not repentant also avoid the doctrine of sin, all the while acting like we believe it. We're just more sophisticated in our avoidance. We're more hypocritical in our execution. And we're content with, cheap, with, with, with really cheap grace. Now I realize right about here in this message is where you need a gospel lift. Whether you begin to, so you don't begin to just despair over yourself and think that hope is lost. It's not. What, God must really hate us down here in our Pharisaism, you know? No, he doesn't. Jesus took the judgment for believing unbelievers also because he loves believing unbelievers. He took the judgment for unbelieving unbelievers, certainly, but also for believing unbelievers. But let's not act, let's not, because we cherish that, let's not act like he's more at home in the Bible Belt because we are. Like he would take all his lunches at Chick-fil-A as well as we would, you know, Jesus' chicken. The Lord Jesus is always on the move among us. He's always on the move among us. He walks the streets of Binghampton. He walks the streets of Germantown. He's always on the move among us, calling us to hear his voice. But in the Bible Belt, he has to call over and through our religiosity, our posturing. He has to call over and through our civil religion that sells our souls to political idols. He has to call over and through our moralism and our Pharisaism and our Jesus is just all right with meism to Doobie Brothers it. And what he's calling us to is he's calling us to life in his name. All that other stuff 
It competes with the gospel. It adds to it. It waters it down. It obscures it. And how does Jesus call to us? I've been lately reflecting. I say lately. For the last few months, I came across uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, translation of Matthew 11 in his message, and I just love it. This is the message translation of Matthew 11. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? (laughs) Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life, Jesus' words. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You know what Jesus is saying in Matthew 11? Be done with religion without repentance because that's what's actually too heavy for you. See, because in religion we end up presuming uh, on the Lord. Religion's not a bad word, by the way. Don't, don't take the way I'm, I'm using it in, in, its, in its, uh, its meaning of, of presuming on the Lord. But it's, the Bible talks about religion, religion that God our Father accepts as faultless is to look after widows and orphans. So don't, don't, you don't need to tell me, you know, you're, you're using the word religion in a pejorative I'm not. But I am giving it to us in the, in the sense of a contrast that in religion we presume on the Lord and in repenting, we seek the Lord and re-seek the Lord. We relocate. See, everything that we go seeking to find for ourselves in our sin, we relocate to finding it in our Savior. It's kind of an irony. I, I think a lot of us in the Bible Belt, We don't hear enough the unforced rhythms of grace because in in our religiosity, we take ourselves so seriously, thinking everything with God depends on us. Or in our religiosity, we we opt for um, cheap grace, which ushers in hypocrisy. Let me remind you what we saw in Romans, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And we're led to repentance over and over again, not to wallow in our sin or to practice worm theology or to discount that you're, you're actually good at something or to uh, do penance. None of that is necessary. None of that is repentance. Repentance is seeking to get our loves back in order. It's seeking to reset the sinner. Who, who has the orbit of my life? Is it my child? Is it their sport? Is it my team? Is it my work? Is it, is it some other relationship? You know, all that has its place in the galaxy of our life. You can have many passions in life, but only one passion of life. What's at the center? Who's at the center? In repentance, we come back to this. It's bowing before the Lord to say, I want you to transform. What, what Isaiah said in, in Isaiah 20, I don't want that to be true of me, Lord. I don't want to look the part and be devoid of the, uh, of, the, of the reality. Paul said in Corinthians, I don't want to preach to others and myself be a castaway. I, I'm haunted by that. So often that verse comes into my praying, Lord, I don't want to tell others about this tomorrow, today, next Sunday. I don't want to tell others about this and, and be a castaway myself, to look the part but not be in it myself. We bow before the Lord and say, Lord, I I want you to transform me by those unforced rhythms of grace so that I want to want you. 
And I want what you offer me, and I want to seek from you, my Savior, what I otherwise will go seeking for myself in sin. In the Bible Belt, we don't emphasize enough, actually, that the Bible is a single great story about Jesus and His delivering, transforming grace start to finish and all the way through. And that's why so much Bible teaching in the Bible Belt is moralism and sin-shaming and five ways to have a better week messages and an over-focus, hyper-focus on marriage and parenting and other felt needs. And I risk saying this now that you think it's, I think it's wrong to be practical and try to help people. I don't. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we can draw into all of that. We can draw near in all of that to ourselves and be helped by it and appreciate it but never meet Jesus. We can get all of that from the church and our hearts still be far from Jesus. I'm saying what our faith is starving for, though it looks well fed. Our faith is starving for a personal encounter with the person of Jesus to be the largest person in our lives. The Bible wasn't given to satisfy our curiosity. It wasn't given to convey timeless principles that are just a little bit better than whatever's in the best-selling self-help book on the shelves. The Bible was given to show us Jesus, why He was anticipated, why He was rejected, why He was resurrected, why He dwells in glory, and why He returns. The Bible was given to show us the fullness of God in Him and how to live as His people until He returns. Loving God and loving neighbor. I think the reason why religious people go cynical and end up hating themselves and one another is because we keep looking for the Savior we need inside of ourselves. We buy into the larger cultural lie that we have everything we need within us. We just have to tap in. We have to find the guru that can help us do that. Or we go looking for the thing we need inside of sin somehow, rather than the Savior we need moving into repentance centers and changing the motivational structures of our heart. And He does that all at once, and He does that over time. Ordering our loves, tenderizing our conscience so that we live as those who draw near to Him, not just in our words or in appearance, but, but as those who are gamely attempting to worship Him, that is to respond to Him as He's revealed Himself to be, which includes things I won't like. How you know you have a God of your own making is He never contradicts you. <laughs> he never tells you anything you don't want to hear. That's not the God that we have in Scripture. When He tells me things I don't want to hear, it's because I'm the one who's off the page. It's because I'm the one who's fallen and flawed. It's because I'm the one who needs the correction, not Him. I'm out of alignment with His way and truth. And even those places where I don't understand what He's doing with this or why He does it that way or why did it have to look like that and not like this. Those times build my trust, which is not a, a blind faith at all. It's, it's trust in what I have good reason to believe is true. This is what repentance does in my life and hopefully yours. It turns my trust ultimately into love. It brings me to that place where I realize that what I'm here for in life is 
all the responsibilities that I have before me, but through those responsibilities in them is to learn how to love him because he first loved me. And the difference between those who draw near with their lips but their hearts are far away, I think as they, as they get gripped by the reality that I didn't have to be brought in this and I didn't bring myself, God brought me in. And God is doing the work in me as the initiator and the innovator and the one who can take all of these disparate things in life and somehow put them together and move in a direction. And I think that's beautiful. These people draw near with their mouth, honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Judgment comes because of that. But one takes the judgment that comes. He came at the perfect time to take the judgment that both unbelievers and believing unbelievers should receive. And that one is the one who fills us and shows us and takes us in the direction that he has uh, mapped out for us long before. Life is about learning to love him. Faith is about learning to trust him in a way that trust becomes love. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, would you transform us both all at once and slowly over time? Thank you that you're painstaking. You're a painstaking God. You will take the pains required to transform us. And Lord, uh, craft and renew and renovate our desires to fit your design. Lord, show us that um, as long as we're in the sound of your word, it is never too late to repent. And that repentance is not this groveling around and engaging in what an awful person I am-ism. It's saying, you know, I, I've got to come back to the center. I've got to have a core. I've got to learn to, to know Jesus, understand his grace, and that's got to turn into love for him. Or I'll never trust him. And obedience will be just an outward conformity. It'll be behavior modification. It won't be something that's, that's radiating from the inside. That even when I know I'm wrong, I want to be right. And when I know I'm off, I want to return. Even in those settings in which I find it difficult. But I thank you that you're with us and you keep us. And you keep showing us over and over again how good you are. Thank you that every page in this Bible, even the, the hard places in this Bible, it, it, it resonates with the care and the concern God has, you have, Lord, for your people. That you've not left yourself without a testimony in this world, and thank you that it's Jesus. Thank you for this church and this opportunity, Lord, to draw near around this passage today and think about realities that we live among. Not so that we go out of here with more arsenal to judge them, but so that we go out of here realizing that the grace that we've received and that's made available to us, that we are in good stewardship of in the world around us. Help us this week, Lord. Give us somebody that we can help them understand better what it is you want and what it is you've done. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.